We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. This week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And by Michael Fahey. Great to be back. Tonight, we'll be discussing KMT presidential candidate Ho Yoi having a busy week by talking about the 1992 consensus, changing the one-year military service policy and touting the need for nuclear power. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs defending the cost of inviting former UK Prime Minister Liz Truss to Taiwan. The Central Election Commission setting the date for a hearing concerning a referendum proposal to allow senior citizens to bet on mahjong games played in public. Attendees at a Ministry of Education organised forum seeking to highlight the need to protect young people against cannabis and a survey finding that children are not eating the proper recommended amount of vegetables or fruits. But we'll begin not with the rather well-known Seven Pillars of Wisdom by one T.E. Lawrence or Lawrence of Arabia is also referred to, but with the four main pillars of peace as was espoused this week by Vice President and DPP presidential candidate Lai Ching-de of, well, Tainan. I guess we should say if we're making similarities there. Now, Lai outlined his pillars not in a 700-word tome but in a roughly 800-word commentary piece published by the Wall Street Journal. The first of Lai's pillars is the need for Taiwan to continue building its defence capabilities in order to reduce the risk of armed conflict by raising the stakes and costs for Beijing. The second is that economic security is national security, with Lai saying that trade dependency with China has created vulnerabilities that can be exploited through economic coercion, and Taiwan must pursue trade agreements that encourage trade diversification. The third pillar stresses Taiwan needs to form partnerships with democracies around the world and also highlights visits to Taiwan in recent years by parliamentarians and official delegations, which Lai says show Beijing that despite its pressure, Taiwan does not stand alone. While the fourth component of the pillars is a commitment to steady and principled cross-strait leadership, with Lai saying that he will continue to support cross-strait status quo and will never rule out the possibility of dialogue with China without preconditions. So, Brian, we have pillars of peace there, mate. Yeah, that's right. And so I think there's a demand for Lai to outline his policies in some formulation. I feel like for political leaders of Taiwan, it's always some number plus something, you know, four yeses, four noes, whatever. Uh, and in this case, I mean, Lai is trying to stress moderation in that sense, that he is open engagement with Beijing and that he's not irrationally opposed to any form of engagement, which is how the KMT has been framing uh, the DPP's policies uh, in the sense that also ca- calling for deterrence and strengthening ties with the international world. And so, I mean, the KMT, when they respond in some form, it will be something, honestly, their platform will sound somewhat similar, uh, but they will not be as much of a fan of the uh, aspects of, for example, military deterrence, uh, though they will also say maybe there's a necessary need to maintain this. And the KMT's also tried to take shots at the DPP strengthening ties with the international world, suggesting that the ties it builds with the US, for example, are dangerous in terms of getting too close and potentially provoking China. But then I think in terms of some of the other rhetoric, it's on the surface level, it will actually sound kind of similar. This piece appeared in the Wall Street Journal. So I think it was actually primarily attend- intended to assure overseas audiences that Lai is not some uh, wild-eyed Taiwanese independence radical. Uh, And all of the pillars are basically an assurance that he's going to continue in Tsai Ing-wen's, uh, pol- continue with Tsai Ing-wen's policies. For example, 
Uh, he's telling people that, yes, we really are committed to turning Taiwan into uh, or to adopting an asymmetric defense policy, which is still controversial in Taiwan. And then for economic security, he's endorsing the Thai administration's policy of uh, um, secure supply chains, which means semiconductor plants in other countries. And then probably the most important, of course, is uh, steady and principled cross-strait leadership. Notice the steady. This is uh, He's not talking about his famously indiscreet comment about being a Taiwan a worker for pragmatic Taiwanese independence, but he's emphasizing steady and principled. He's going to continue uh, operating the, ta- the same way that Tsai has. In particular, dialogue without preconditions, which means no 1992 consensus. But I think that this kind of rhetoric is a problem for Lai here in Taiwan. Naturally, after eight years, voters are looking for a change. Lai is in the uncomfortable position of telling voters that he's going to deliver exactly the same things as the previous <laughs> administration did. Yeah, exactly. And so Lai is under this demand then to offer something new, something visionary or uh, so forth, but then also maintain continuity. And so some version of that is, is what he needs to do. And so he needs to come up with something programmatic, or that sounds programmatic, while also maintaining the same policies as Tsai. And so it is interesting because I think it does show the shifts that have happened in the past eight years under Tsai. Um, Tsai, I mean, her first inaugural address, there was a lot of people watching to see what she acknowledged the 1990 consensus. And what she said and said was referring to the historical facts of the 1992 talks, and then eventually just she was eventually in a position to never really ever bring up the 1990 consensus. And so that's why Lai is in this position now in which he doesn't have to say that and he won't say that and that would be viewed as a compromise. Uh, in the meantime, the KMT will probably attack these issues on, for example, just his refusal to, to acknowledge the 1990 consensus uh, regarding semiconductor plants built in the US, but also, for example, Lithuania. I mean, the idea of semiconductor cooperation is now under fire by the KMT everywhere with the notion that this is leading to Taiwan losing its trade secrets potentially or its competitive advantages. And so there'll be that kind of rhetoric coming out. I mean, Hoyoi recently leaned more into the 1990 consensus, which is a bit surprising. Uh, but I think that we're in this position now where Lai is stressing continuity and on, in some way, actually, the other side of the camp, Hoyoi is also doing the same, stressing continuity with the Ma administration at the very least. And of course, Brian, what's interesting here is he also, Lai being the person I'm talking about, sort of played down the need to move away from China vis-à-vis trade and economic ties. But then, of course, this same week, Maurice Jung, the Taiwan semiconductor dude, of course, came out and said countries not trading with each other and refusing to trade with each other is basically spoiling globalization. Yeah, I mean, it's not the first such comments from uh, Chang, for example, he declared globalization dead when he opened the uh, with the opening ceremony of the Arizona plant for TSMC. And so that is the question. I think that particularly the KMT is now leaning into this issue, calling for economic engagement with China, uh, saying that the DPP is irrationally opposed to this, that this is leading to China becoming increasingly provocative. Uh, it's increasingly provocative of China. And this reason why we have heightening cross-strait tensions. And that includes propositions such as reviving the cross-strait services trade agreement, which was so opposed in 2014 in the actions that resulted in the Sun Farm movement. And so then Lai is saying that he's not opposed to trade with China uh, at a time in which, for example, the the world is talking about de-risking from China, decoupling from China, and so forth. Uh, I mean, the DPP does phrase, frame the KMT when they're arguing for this as moving in a direction that is against international trends. Uh, but then I think for Lai, I mean, the, the notion is to show that he's not irrationally opposed to that. And in the meantime, the KMT will also attack DPP politicians saying that, well, they actually do trade in China. They're, they're hypocritical here, uh, calling for backing away from China. But I think Lai means to show moderation. 
Moving on now, and after several weeks of mostly silence, well, KMT presidential candidate Hoyoi was busy, well, talking this week. He began by stressing his support for reactivating or extending the use of Taiwan's three nuclear power plants and to make use of the unfinished fourth plant pending a safety evaluation. Ho said one of his most important policies will be to ensure that households and industrial users will not experience electricity shortages and that his energy policy will be based on three major principles, those being safety, stability and carbon emission reduction. He also said that nuclear power is absolutely an option in safety concerns were addressed and nuclear waste properly handled. And from there he moved on to affirming his support for a version of the 1992 consensus that conforms with the ROC constitution. And while he didn't really elaborate on what he meant there, he did point out that it's long been part of the KMT's cross-strait policy platform that it means one China, different interpretations, which allows Taipei and Beijing to have separate conclusions as to what China means. And from there Ho jumped to compulsory military service, where he said he'll restore the length of compulsory military service service to four months, that from the one-year period which is set to begin in January. And speaking on a TVBS political talk show on Monday of this week, Ho said if elected he will work towards securing peace in the Taiwan Strait and once that goal was achieved he will shorten the one-year service period back to four months. However, speaking on Tuesday, Ho said that he understood the need to extend conscription vis-à-vis China getting a bit bullshy, but he opposed the DPP's proposal for a 3 plus 1 plan which would allow the year of military service to be considered part of a four-year college education. Now, the rationale behind that was basically, he said, the policy would create chaos in the education system because men could complete their college studies in three years while women would still need four years to get their degree and that would in turn create an imbalance in the allocation of education resources and shorten the time students have to learn. So, Michael, he said quite a bit about things that some people will obviously get a bit miffed about, but other people will nod their heads about. Well, the people who are going to be nodding their heads are those who supported the Ma administration, because as Brian just pointed out, this is a replication of Ma policy uh, from past years. For example, uh, by far the most important of these is his affirmation of the 1992 consensus. Uh, But in his remarks, he also explained that... uh, What he supports is what he calls the constitutional 1992 consensus, which is a line of argument that Ma has pursued many times, which is that somehow the the 1992 consensus is legally compelled or legally supported by the Constitution and the Mainland Affairs Act. Of course, the Constitution says nothing about a 1992 consensus, um, but moreover, in, at least in 2017, Maingjo elaborated on this and said that what the 1992 consensus means is that the Republic of China, Taiwan, and the People's Republic of China do not uh, disaffirm each other's sovereignty and they don't do not recognize each other's sovereignty and do not disaffirm each other's right to govern. Ho repeated that as being the content of the 1992 consensus. So that's, a, I think, a very good example of how closely he's following my administration policies. Yeah, that's right. And so it seems like a lot of the old political platforms of the past are being trotted out again by the KMT. And so it is interesting because Ma left office quite unpopular, but now that's remembered as a high point for the KMT in some sense. And I think it also reflects the difficulties for the party to come up with something new. 
in some sense, I think Ho is playing catch-up here because there was a real demand, I think, from the public for him to come out with something problematic once he became the KMT presidential candidate. And he did not do that. Instead, just making very ambiguous statements and trying to play it safe. And so now I think he's playing catch-up. But it's also interesting to note the shifts that he has made regarding the 1990 consensus in that originally he did not specifically state that he acknowledged it in any form, tried to kind of avoid the issue, but said that he did recognize Ma's kind of contributions to this. Uh, but then now he's in a position where he has to actually say that he endorses some form of the 1990 consensus. I think he's in that position because people are now publicly talking about him being removed at the upcoming party congress at the end of this month, as <laughs> happened to Hong Xiu Zhu uh, in 2016, famously. So I think he's in a position where he has to consolidate the more conservative, deeper blue side of the KMT. That may come back to haunt him because he's going to be boxed in. I think that his flexibility on the 1992 consensus and his coyness about nuclear power before when he was mayor of New Taipei City were useful positions for him to move towards more moderate voters. But for now, his main priority is to get through that party congress without losing his candidacy, <laughs> and then he'll just have to work from there. But again, he's in the same position as Lai is, which is that he's promising all right, not the policies of the Thai administration, but the policies of the Ma administration, which at the end of his eight years were quite unpopular. And that's probably why uh, Kuinta is doing so well right now, because unlike the other two candidates, he's the only one who's promising any kind of change. Yeah, and so Ho is in quite a, a predicament here, and it is quite unusual because, I mean, he looked quite strong just a few months ago, and then suddenly there's such a reversal in polling regarding him. And so I think also a lot of these issues go back institutionally to the KMT in that sense, and the fact that there is this precedent for moving candidates now has come back to haunt the KMT. Uh, I'd be quite amused if it's Eric True running again, but in this case, I mean, we'll just have to see. And I think regards to Ho, uh, he does need to appeal to the hardliners of the party, but I think also it reflects the strength of Ma ying and his camp's position. Uh, Jing Putong, for example, being part of the Ho campaign now, as uh, Jing Putong was one of Ma's trusted lieutenants, that is also quite significant, because I think then Ho cannot escape the specter of Ma in that sense, or the shadow that Ma casts over him. And Ma has been very intent on cementing the 1990 consensus within the party as his legacy. Um, with regards to the military draft as well, I mean, it is interesting because the KMT has made more appeals to veterans in recent years. And uh, this historically is lowering the draft. I actually don't think that some of their base would mind as much because it is viewed as a rite of passage. Uh, they're not too happy about the increased tension to China. But that's not always the major issue here. And so throwing that idea out quite late, I think it's seen as a kind of almost cheap shot in some way and by some members of the public. I mean, if he had this position, for example, he should have come up with it in the beginning. But then it does kind of seem like he's grasping at straws here for more things to solidify his position or to compromise a, a program for himself. Do you think maybe Michael Ho is being, when it comes to military conscription, he's just being contrary to what the DPP said? I think that Ho knows that he's weakest among younger voters, mm. and quite naturally, uh, younger voters are going to be concerned first about uh, wasting, quote unquote. Uh, eight more months in the military and then the possibility that they might actually have to fight in an invasion. Uh, mm. And if I were a young person, I'd be concerned about that, too. So I think that Ho, by promising that uh, he would reduce the draft, is trying to reach out to younger voters. I think that's his primary motivation. It seems a rather inane way to attract the youth vote, Brian. 
Um, yeah, I think so. But I think it's, it's something he jumped at in that sense as a, a quick move to try to attract younger voters. I think, for example, promising educational policy in some way that helps younger voters or, uh, let's say, housing policy, that might actually be more effective there or it would be seen as more uh, substantive. But I think that this is this is what you went for. I mean, it's not too surprising for KMD Canada to make such promises, but um, it, it is it is a, a kind of quick and easy move on his part that Actually, I think he would. It does open up up fire, and I mean, there was also that he confirmed uh, his campaign team confirmed that AIT had reached out to him about this actually, and so then if he wants to reassure that in some way that he's okay with both China and the U.S. and he can maintain relations with both, I mean, that doesn't exactly look good for him either. I thought it was really interesting the way the AIT immediately mm-hmm. reached out to <laughs> the campaign, and then Ho came back with a press conference on Tuesday to clarify. His views. Uh, it seems to me the message the AIT probably was sending to the Ho campaign and others is that we're watching. Yeah, it's also interesting that he did actually sort of back away on Tuesday, though, because of the fact that he said, well, I'm not opposed to lengthening it to one year uh, and so forth, just I oppose the three plus one plan. I mean, it seems like it, it didn't go as well for him in just making this kind of statement as, as maybe he had hoped. And so there is some way where she was trying to walk it back slightly. I mean, I think that the cat is out of the bag and he probably will have to commit to a stance of lowering it to four months at this point. But it also does reflect a kind of, I think, just a, a, that is not very well thought out as a political move. But just like the nuclear power plant issue, Mm. it's conditional. Mm, That's right. If there's peace and stability, then conscription goes down to four months. If nuclear power plants are found to be safe and there's a way to store nuclear waste safely, Mm. then he will reopen them or start them again. There's a lot of wiggle room in that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Brian, he could be getting a backlash about the nuclear power policy. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, this is an idea that's uh, come up in a very interesting way in this uh, this uh, election cycle. I mean, for example, the notion of constructing small-scale nuclear reactors that was introduced by Terry Goh. Uh, he came under criticism for that when it was uh, cited for Mount Banping in, in Kaohsiung. But then the notion of that came up uh, with regard to Lai then. He was, Lai was pushed on the issue and he said that, well, potentially in invasion, we have to rely on nuclear energy because of our limited energy supplies. And that's always been a consideration, I think, among military circles that nuclear energy invasion scenarios, it might be useful. But then it didn't come out publicly into the public discourse this way. But then this time around with Ho, he's in a kind of awkward position. It's more the usual, I think, a question of what do you do with nuclear waste? And this is a question that people have tried to tack him on regarding his record in New Taipei. And so now he's in this position where the KMT is, is traditionally very pro-nuclear uh, and he is also probably being pushed on this. And so I think this is, part, this is part and parcel of the fact that he does need to reassure the more hardline aspects of the KMT now of loyalty and that he will be their man in office. And that actually does include advocacy of nuclear power, not just even 99 consensus and, and so forth. It is, a, it is a solid position, the KMT. I mean, obviously, Thai power are a bit miffed about Ho's comments about nuclear power, and someone had to explain that we, we can't just go in and turn the lights back on after we've turned them out. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's strange is that, for example, uh, Nuclear 4 has come up so many times. I mean, Nuclear 4 is especially controversial, and there's ways to advocate for nuclear energy, but maybe not Nuclear 4, but there's no nuance in this debate at all. And so, therefore, people call for restarting Nuclear 4 as a way to push for more nuclear power overall. And that reflects a deep polarization of the debate around nuclear energy, but then uh, it's also just been sitting there for quite a while. And so, I mean... 
I think the question is that, yeah, just uh, energy policy, it fluctuates from administration to administration. I think the people that run energy in Taiwan are not too happy when people make political promises and as though you can just magically wish away forms of energy or things that have resources been put into constructing uh, or dismantling, and there's all this back and forth. And I think then uh, it becomes a difficult position, I think. And Michael, it's summer now, and of course the temperature goes up, all the air conditioners go on. Do we think maybe the government is now holding its breath, hoping to God there won't be any power outages? Absolutely. Uh, I think that a power outage now would turn into uh, the topic of political discussion, would dominate the campaign for the next two weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's more focus on semiconductor manufacturing than ever in Taiwan. So there's that as well, not just uh, the inconvenience. And so I think power outages is is still a uh, very salient political issue in that sense. Moving on now, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week defended the government's decision to invite former UK Prime Minister Liz Truss to the island in May. Now, defence of what some have called a rather questionable invite in the first place followed the release of information concerning how much she was actually paid. Now, Truss visited Taiwan at the invitation of the Prospect Foundation think tank from May the 16th through the 20th. She gave a speech in Taipei for said foundation, but she also made time to meet with President Tsai Ing-wen, Premier Chen Jianren and other senior government officials. Now, according to financial disclosures published on the British Parliament's website. Trust received payment of 80,000 British pounds from the foundation for said speech and 10,841 pounds from the foreign ministry for the flights, hospitality and accommodation. Now the KMT was quick to see this and party legislative caucus whip William Tsung called on the government to spend wisely when inviting foreign dignitaries to Taiwan and he went on to say that taxpayers' money is being wasted if the benefits generated by such visits are not high enough. Now, Premier Chen Jianren also opted to address the issue, saying the government sincerely appreciates and welcomes the support for Taiwan from like-minded countries. But then he added, the public should not speculate too much on the matter. Yeah, it is quite interesting. I mean, this is not the first time there have been such reports regarding visits by uh, politicians in Taiwan and there being payoffs, especially former politicians that were not in office now and are private citizens. That's not the case with the trusts. Uh, and they're visiting Taiwan and making various statements as part of moves to run for president, for example, let's say with uh, John Bolton or Mike Pompeo and so forth. And the red carpet is rolled out for such individuals, but I think particularly the government is not always the most attentive to the optics of, for example, lighting up Taipei 101 for Mike Pompeo or, or something of that nature. Uh, what's interesting to me, though, is actually with Liz Truss as a former PM of uh, the UK, if it had been anyone else, China would have had a quite strong reaction. But in this case, there's not a very strong reaction. And so I do wonder if the government thinks there's a way to get their foot in the door by having a visit by a former British prime minister and not having a reaction from China. I mean, if there's a strategy to this, it might just be that. Uh, and then the notion that this can allow for higher profile targets in the future that would actually be more politically substantial and would visit Taiwan now that this, there has been this precedent. That's the positive spin on this, I think, if there is a strategy from the government. And it could just be, on the other hand, just more political short-sightedness and banking on right-wing figures and political husbands to visit Taiwan and throwing money at them for that to occur with the notion that it expands Taiwan's international space when it may not, in fact. First of all, Taiwan got a great deal on this one. <laughs> when Bill Clinton came in 2010, his speaker's fee was 750000 US dollars. It'd probably be double now. <laughs> And they spent 250000 on flights and hotels. So about 300000 U.S. dollars to Liz Truss, I think, in 2023 is looking pretty good. It's good to see Taiwan branching out to other countries such as Eastern Europe. Uh, the U.K. Is a, is a major country that punches well above its weight 
it makes some sense to invite Liz Truss. After all, she was granted she was only prime minister for what 40 days or something like that less than it took for iceberg lettuce to go moldy famously yes for a very short time (laughs) however she was politically important enough to get elected or or selected as prime minister uh so there's surely some political capital that's there Uh, and perhaps president size many years of study in the uk colors the importance of of this as well on the downside though I do think that, as Brian was saying, you know, whether it's Mike Pompeo or Liz Truss, these people are on the right wing of the political spectrum in both the U.S. and the U.K. The right wing in those countries has always been more supportive of Taiwan. The people Taiwan really needs to reach are people who support labor in the U.K. or people who support the Democratic Party in the U.S. They're the ones who are skeptical especially on the further left sides of those parties about support for Taiwan. So when you bring somebody like Liz Trust or somebody really incendiary like Mike Pompeo, <laughs> you're alienating huge swaths of people who need to be persuaded to support Taiwan. That would be my argument against it. But they did get a good deal. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week Now. And the Central Election Commission on Monday announced that a hearing on a referendum proposal to allow people aged 65 and over to legally place bets on mahjong games in public will be held in a couple of weeks. The draft referendum proposal was submitted by the Taiwan Mahjong Greatest Party. And according to party founder and chairman Guo Xi, the referendum seeks to insert specific language into Article 266 of the Criminal Code that will make it legal for bets under 1000 NT to be placed on mahjong games played in public. Now, Article 266 currently states that gambling in public or via electronic or virtual means is punishable by a maximum fine of 50,000 NT. Now, Gore told reporters that while the law contains an exception for gambling that is done for temporary amusement, it does not clarify, define or term or set a ceiling for how much can be wagered. Now, the Election Commission says the hearing will assess whether the topic meets the requirements for a national referendum or whether it is clearly worded. So, Brian, the Mahjong Party Party wants to legalize mahjong betting in public for the elderly. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, I live in Wahua, for example, and you see all these mahjong parlors, and they all have names like Mahjong Healthy Association or Mahjong Leisure Association, or emphasizing that mahjong is healthy. And you do see a lot of elderly people playing there. And so it is a way for people to socialize. But then the question is gambling. And there's always been quite a lot of sensitivity to gambling in Taiwan. And uh, that's historical. I mean, I don't really see the police going around busting down doors for mahjong from place to place. Uh, you hear mahjong being played all the time in apartments, for example, and there might be gambling involved, but the police is not exactly raiding there. Um, the political party involved is, has a rather colorful name and platform, but uh, I mean, it's a question. And, you know, why does this have to be put to a natural referendum as an issue for this to be debated? It's kind of a question, but then a lot of issues end up being proposed for a referendum, anything on, for example, shortening the amount of time for executions to uh, gambling on mahjong. Well, it turns out that Mr. Guo has a horse in this race, because (laughs) it just so happens that he operates eight sparkling brand new modern mahjong leisure parlors from (laughs) Danshui down to Kaohsiung. 
Uh, and he's even got the idea that these mahjong parlors, which he is <laughs> pitching as being uh, good for elderly people to stay mentally active and stuff, if gambling was permitted, they could be integrated into retirement communities, and the stakes from the gambling <laughs> could be used to lessen, reduce the cost of accommodation in these places. So it's an interesting proposal. Now, I did take a look at the notice for the public hearing that's coming up on, I think, the 17th of this month, and it looks to me like the Central Election Commission is likely to say that this referendum does not meet the legal requirements for a referendum. Because on the one hand, it does not create a new provision of law, but on the other hand, it doesn't cancel an existing provision of law. What it's trying to do is add an exception to an existing law. And I think the CEC is probably going to take the position that adding an exception is not permitted by the Referendum Act. I disagree with this completely, and I think this is just legal wrangling, but, I, <laughs> but I, it looks to me like they're preparing to do that. What about if he'd filed a referendum proposal that basically said it should be legal for everybody, obviously over the age of 18, to wager on mahjong games? Well, I think the problem with that, Gavin, is that you can basically do two things in a national referendum. One is that you can say that you want to add a new provision to the law. For example, you could say everyone over 18 can can bet on Mahjong games. <laughs> the problem with that is that there's an existing law that prohibits gambling. So in with that law, what you would need to do would be to come up with a referendum that cancels that existing provision. Uh, so I don't think that your proposed referendum would be allowed either. I mean, I'd be amused if we became a country in which you cannot vote at age 18, but you can play mahjong and gamble. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess we'll have to see then. Uh, it is also political, I mean, which issues get voted on. I mean, there's always the argument that it's a little too late for this to occur, that this uh, proposition should have occurred earlier, uh, which is also something the CEC has brought up to turn down referendum uh, submissions. But then it would be a, a bit odd if this was the only or one of the more charged issues voted on, I guess, for the national referendum. And of course, Mark, was some years ago, there was a push to legalise gambling on the offshore islands and open casinos. But of course, that went down the toilet, so to speak. Well, that was a bit different because, as I recall, there needs to be a local referendum in favour. And Penghu and Mantu and these places where it's been proposed are distinctly more conservative than mainland Taiwan. So I think it's very difficult. There were enthusiastic proponents of it, but in the end, I think they found it difficult to get over the hurdle of local opposition. Yeah, that's right. And so I think um, it, it does play into this broader consideration of what to do with casinos, for example. This notion is floated periodically of legalizing casinos and gambling as a way to bring in income and so forth in various parts of Taiwan, but it doesn't seem to pick up too much steam. And I think uh, in this case, it's a little unlikely with just mahjong for the elderly. There's a, a sort of a, a, a fear of gambling in Taiwan. Obviously, there's not a fear because loads of people do it. But I mean, is there a fear of legally gambling in Taiwan? 
there's that, and there are all the various forms it takes as well. I mean, for example, pigeon racing. I mean, that's another form of gambling, and you see that in many places. And uh, it purely comes up with the news. I mean, uh, it still occurs, and it is quite large. I mean, there are people that train pigeons for this, and and mahjong is one of the more prominent ones. But there are also various other forms of gambling that take place. One once many years ago, the head of the Taipei City Health and Welfare Department told me that the worst vice in Taiwan is gambling, because uh, if you drink too much or use drugs, it's bad for your health, and you might get put in jail. But if you gamble, you're going to lose your house, and you might get your hand chopped off. And of course, Brian, there's also been talk about horse racing circuits here or tracks here. Yeah, that's right. And we did have a, uh, a former presidential candidate that was quite fond of that idea from the KMT, and so that that also comes up in various various forms. Yeah, I mean, ideas floated periodically. I think that particularly, it's not likely to become, I think, the main issue people vote on for sure. And the Ministry of Education this week hosted a forum on the prevention of cannabis. The event was attended by government officials, scholars and civil groups. And according to experts at the forum, cannabis use among students is increasing and it's now the second most used illegal drug after ketamine. Now the groups attending the forum also released a statement saying that young people here in Taiwan are viewing calls from around the world for the legalisation of cannabis and cannabis-related products and are ignoring the addictive and harmful nature of said narcotic. Now the Department of Students Affairs and Special Education Education Director General told attendees that the rising cannabis use is due to more countries opting to legalize it because more public figures are also being seen smoking it and the availability of articles online advocating for its legalization. That official went on to say that the Ministry of Education will be circulating educational material over the summer holidays to inform students and their parents about cannabis use, and they also said that institutes will be conducting random testing when the next academic year begins. Brian. Yeah, I mean, that would be an issue, particularly if students are increasingly caught using cannabis and then uh, there's random testing being conducted. I think student groups would be quite upset about that in terms of violating autonomy uh, for students and of their own bodies, even in that sense. Uh, but the government continues to have a very conservative position on cannabis legalization, even as the movement that is in favor of legalizing for medical purposes is on the rise. And the rise of that movement has been quite surprising, I think, in the past few years in terms of that it did grow pretty quickly in a short amount of time when this was not even discussed around, let's say, six, seven years ago. And I think uh, the government will continue to be very slow on the matter and resistant, even as you do have legalization in Thailand. And now it is everywhere in Thailand. It's a source of income for tourism and, and so forth. Um, but then uh, I think particularly the the kind of crackdowns, I mean, this is something that the public does wish to see as part of a desire for law and order. And so then you do see, for example, all the uh, photos of politicians visiting drug busts and standing in front of the was caught and, and so forth. And that includes cannabis as well. And uh, despite the, I think, mildness of the drug compared to a lot of other harder drugs, it uh, it's still framed along similar lines. One of the participants in the forum said that he conducted a poll in Taiwan and found that over 90% of people in Taiwan are opposed to decriminalization of cannabis. If you look at what happened in the United States, the middle class became exposed to cannabis in the 1960s, and it was 50 years before cannabis was decriminalized in some American states. Qi Jiawei, the the father of uh, the same-sex marriage movement and uh, rights for LGBTQ, started protesting back in 1987 and 1988, or 1988 for this, and I think went to jail at one point uh, Mm. for his advocacy. 
same-sex marriage was not legalized in Taiwan uh, until, you know, practically 40 years later. I think Taiwan is a more conservative society than perhaps some recent arrivals to Taiwan realize. Uh, They've been, over the last eight years, we've seen by far the most liberal administration that we've ever had in Taiwan. And that's not necessarily indicative of what mainstream ideas are. On the other hand, uh, I'm happy to report that Zoe Lee, the cannabis lawyer, has not been put in jail for her advocacy, <laughs> despite the fact that some of the forum, people attending the forum probably would have liked to see that. Uh, and I don't think it's going to take 40 or 50 years to decriminalize at least medical use cannabis in Taiwan. I think that actually a couple decades, but it's not going to be uh, tomorrow. I, I, I do see something, though, on uh, the, the participants in the forum. I think a point they could make is that currently cannabis is not widely available to juveniles in Taiwan. However, if cannabis became legal, it would be become much more available. That situation is very different than in other countries where there's a large illegal market and it's already available to juveniles. So I think that it's banned for minors in all countries that I'm aware of. And I do think that the medical profession thinks there are risks uh, for juvenile use of, of cannabis. And for that reason, I think those opposed to it in Taiwan actually have a pretty strong argument that not to decriminalized because it would increase access for minors. And before we go this week, the Formosa Cancer Foundation released the results of a recent survey that found that only 7% of elementary school students eat the recommended three servings of vegetables and two pieces of fruits per day. Now, according to the foundation, the survey was based on a questionnaire collected from 400 parents in June, and it found that on average, elementary school-aged children only ate 1.72 servings of vegetables and 1.55 servings of fruit per day. It also showed that nearly 90% of respondents said their children did not eat any fruits or vegetables at breakfast. Shock horror. Now, the foundation says that parents cited their children's picky eating habits as being the main reason for the failure to eat vegetables and fruits, and that was followed by a busy lifestyle, lack of time to prepare fresh produce, and the habit of eating out at restaurants with limited fruit and vegetable options. So, Michael, obviously you're a lot older than an elementary school student, but, I mean, did you eat your vegetables and fruit when you were their age? I hated vegetables as a kid. <laughs> I might have liked them a little bit better in Taiwan because uh, I, I think I actually, it was really tasting like Kong uh, um, Tai uh, in Taiwan, that the, the way that it's prepared here that uh, really opened up my mind to new ways of eating vegetables. But I think it was also at an age, you know, I was in my early 20s, and I think that's when most people who do eat fruits and vegetables really start. The truth is, is that, a lot of kids just don't like fruits and vegetables. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I, I was I, one I, of them. I don't, I, don't, I don't think we need a scientific poll to tell us that, but uh, it, is, it is absolutely true. I mean, yeah, kids don't like to eat vegetables, and that's an issue, I think, in any society. It was it was really interesting, <laughs> though, in the coverage of this story. Uh, one, one, one nutritionist really knows how to talk to Taiwanese parents, though. She was telling them that if... Everyone said that the key to getting them to eat the right numbers of vegetables and, and, and fruit is to have them eat some for breakfast, because apparently breakfasts are almost completely vegetable-free. Mm. And she said that if the typical foods that kids eat at the May or May sandwich shops or this kind of thing are high in carbohydrates and fat and grease, and they cause blood sugar to drop quickly so kids won't be able to pay attention in class. Mm. If they eat fruits and vegetables, 
collectibles, however, they will be in much better condition to absorb the information that they're being taught. And then another thing that really struck me in this, though, that I was actually kind of concerned about, uh, it mentioned that 80% of Taiwanese kids eat breakfast regularly. What about the other 20%? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I also wonder about access to vegetables. I think, um, for example, there's such fluctuation in prices in Taiwan, and there's also often panic buying behavior. People are dissuaded from buying, uh, you know, certain goods because of inflation, for example. And I wonder if that affects vegetables as well, or you know, how some parents consider where to, um, you know, whether to buy vegetables and, and things like that. I mean, often it does go to economics, and you know, where are actually people buying vegetables or eating vegetables? I mean. Uh, it is. Are they buying from traditional markets, from supermarkets? Uh, is it part of eating out at a restaurant or eatery or a breakfast shop? Nice question. And it is true, though. I mean, just the breakfast culture in Taiwan does not have a lot of vegetables as part of it. And Michael, what about changing dietary habits over generations? Of course, once upon a time here, there was not much fast food, and there was a lot more local restaurants. And these restaurants that are now, how to put this politely, pretend to be Western restaurants, should we say? don't always sell plates of vegetables as they should. They sell more fried food, we should say. That's true, but the breakfast shops have never had any fruits and vegetables, <laughs> as far as I can tell. And neither does, uh, well, I, I, I suppose there are some preserved vegetables in, in the traditional kanji-type breakfast that people, uh, older people still eat. But, but yeah, it, it's very true. Uh, you know, over the years, uh, there's been a definite increase in the amount of bread and the sort of thing that people eat. And, and not that many people eat the traditional Taiwanese breakfast of kanji and, uh, um, that, that could include uh, vegetables. So I, I think that is a factor as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's uh, it reflects changing dietary habits, and, and some of it also does influence, I think, just uh, trends in the international world as they enter Taiwan, in that sense. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And by Michael Fahey. Take care. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on our favourite podcast app, where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.